Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut and gather around for our weekly analysis of IT news. Network Break this week is sponsored in part by Nokia. You can find out how Nokia's SR Linux operating system can help you build a data center fabric with eVPN. Check out a recent Tech Bytes episode we recorded with Nokia on the subject. You can listen and get more information by going to nokia.ly slash eVPN. Stay tuned for a Tech Bytes podcast conversation about security clouds that offer capabilities including firewall, traffic inspection, web gateways, and more. We explore why these clouds aren't all the same and why the architecture under the hood makes a difference. Our sponsor for that conversation is Netscope. All right, Greg, let's get into the news. Uh, first, Salesforce is going to require customers to set up multi-factor authentication starting February 1st of 2022. So that deadline is coming. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> Salesforce is a big operation and it's got hundreds of thousands of users, maybe millions of users worldwide, and saying that multi-factor authentication is becoming new on the 1st of February. I think it's more like new users on the 1st of February and things like that. But I think the challenge here is that if you're Salesforce, you have to move towards compulsory 2FA because hacking, data loss, data, they've seen companies like SolarWinds and Kaseya and a range of other companies get attacked through customer logins. And their infrastructure goes down. I think Salesforce is doing some brand protection here. And the best way that we know to do that is to make accounts harder for hackers to get to. And that is the weak point. So forcing MFA steps up into the direct, into that direction. Yeah, and uh, this is from the, the company FAC. It says, quote, all internal users who log into Salesforce products, including partner solutions through the user interface, must use MFA for every login. So I think this applies to all customers. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think this is a step. Now, the challenge here is can you imagine all of those people out there who've been using passwords for 20 years or whatever, <laughs> who've never run across a 2FA in their life? And just imagine how much challenge that's going to be for uh, sysadmins and, you know, administ- help desks to say, yeah, now you have to use two-factor. Now, of course, today it's a lot easier than it used to be. You don't have to do a token rollout. You can probably use smartphone apps and you right. know, apps right. that are on your smart on your phone and link up your face face ID on your Apple iOS device or the equivalent on Android and so forth. So I don't think it's going to be as difficult as it used to be because you can use your smartphones for a lot of this to have some sort of app which triggers a code, whereas before you had to do these rollouts where you had to mail a physical thing to everybody. Right, a physical token or something, yes, or a key file yeah. or whatever, yeah. Whereas these days people have gotten <laughs> much better at holding on to the fob, except today we call it a smartphone. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so, yeah. Um, Hopefully, this is the sort of thing because this will affect executives as much as you know people down at sales people on the ground mm-hmm. who are notoriously like, I don't want to do any work at all. I just want to sell stuff, and then you know entering my stuff into Salesforce is something that's not cool to my thing. But forcing them to do two FA, but especially the executives, could see a bit of a breakthrough in the adoption of two FA once they get to do it once. It means they'd start using it for a lot of other things, and we could see this driving a corporate approach to two FA. Or I'm hopeful. I could wish. I could wish. You know, I, I think it's interesting in that, you know, cloud services are intentionally designed to be as frictionless as possible and authentication, multi-factor authentication in particular causes friction. So it seems like maybe the balance is starting to tip from ease of use toward uh, building more around risk management. Um, I think Salesforce mm. is an entrenched enough company that they can probably, they're not worried too much about this losing business or driving customers away. Um, no. So I'm curious to see if others, you know, other big cloud providers start to follow suit. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it goes. It's just, it's one of those things where the first time somebody forces you to use a feature like two-factor, however it works, right? 
it might be the first time that this person's ever engaged with. And once they've done it once, they go like, oh, yeah. So we've seen banking roll out 2FA right. sort of in fits and stabs. And I know in America, the banking industry is, for example, is much further behind than it is here in Europe or in uh, Asia where they have much more sophisticated logins. So I'm hopeful that this might move the needle on, you know, advancing beyond user pass into 2FA type of some sort. But as I said, I think the key transition here that enables this is actually smartphones. I think so, yeah. Um, and just to note, Salesforce doesn't say what happens to customers who don't meet the February 1st deadline other than to say that those customers will be, quote, out of compliance with their contractual obligations, end quote, and Salesforce recommends having a conversation with your legal department about the implications of what not meeting a contractual obligation means. Um, That's a hell of a threat. Wow. <laughs> I missed that bit. That is, in other words, if you get hacked, we're not liable. <laughs> I, I, to me, it sounds like, and this is my own opinion, not legal advice, that Salesforce is sort of reserving the right to go medieval on customers uh, if mm. need be, but there may be sort of like a little grace period where you can be like, I, we'll, we'll get to it like February 15th, is that okay? And maybe Salesforce will be mm. like, all right, but you know, they're, they're serious about it, but you know, they reserve the right to uh, come, down on, come down hard on you if necessary. I think so. But I also think this is uh, Salesforce, like, as I said before, Salesforce is protecting itself yes. from its customers. Yes, if you choose not to be in line and Salesforce gets and you know, your data gets stolen on Salesforce's platform, then all of the legal protections are off the table because I, you didn't comply. Yeah. I had that note exactly in my own notes, yes, that I feels like gives mm. requiring MFA gives Salesforce a little bit more legal cover in case of uh, a breach or a data yeah. leak. They can say, this is what we did. You didn't comply. Uh, so not our yeah. fault. Yeah, take a hike. Following the time on a tradition of blaming the customer when a big tech company doesn't do a good job. Exactly. <laughs> Anyway, we've got a couple of links in the show notes, one with the, the FAQ if you want more details. And there's also uh, a website you can check from uh, Salesforce to see if your implementation satisfies their MFA requirements. That's all in the show notes. All right, moving on, uh, blogger Ben Cox, he shared an interesting post where he writes about playing with an SFP optic that's running Linux on the SFP. The model he purchased is from a Russian manufacturer called Plum Space that includes an FPGA and an ARM core that runs a Debian flavor. Yeah, this is something I've seen a couple of times over the last two decades. Um, I think the last time I saw this, this was Huawei, and they were putting a version of their router code into the SFP. Mm. Um, I can't find it. I can't confirm or deny that <laughs> because I, can't, I don't. Maybe they don't do it anymore. But the original idea was that you would put uh, that telcos would take a standard cheap you know, a gigabit switch and then plug this SFP into it and that would give you an MPLS edge router on an SFP. Um, and that was a really good idea at the time, but ultimately the industry went in a different direction and implemented uh, MPLS in the, the other end. So they just assumed that the traffic that was coming out of the customer and there was no need to have an MPLS router on the customer site at a certain point in time. And so this sort of faded by the wayside. So it's interesting to see that this company, Plum Space, has picked up the technology. But I think the interesting part here is that Ben actually bought some of these and then started to have a bit of a hack around. Yeah. And the blog post explains how he got onto the Linux box that actually is running inside of the SFP and started to play around with it. So reading it is actually a really good insight into giving you it makes your brain, bends your brain to think about things a little differently. Bent mine anyway. Yeah, he outlines a few ideas of things you could do with it, like maybe running a BGP route server with not obviously a, a huge route table, but you know potentially useful, or or doing out of band management with it. And he also put a packet capture engine. So when I saw this in my RSS feed, I looked at it for a while and I started thinking about it because I follow his blog in an RSS reader, and um, it sort of struck me that there's a whole bunch of different ways it could go. But at the end of the day, the Linux 
instance that runs in the Hedgehog. Now, keep in mind that most SFPs actually have a chipset in it, and but that chipset is normally a DSP. And what it's doing is um, grooming the signal that's going on to the copper or the optic. And if you're running an active optical or an active copper, like a DAC, um, that uh, DSP or that computer that's in the head shell is actually way more sophisticated. In this case, they're actually putting a whole computer in the head shell. So these are not, they don't look like a normal SFP. They're actually quite a bit bigger. So they're sort of like a uh, there's like the normal SFP that sits inside the Ethernet switch in the mm-hmm. tray, mm-hmm. but there's that amount of it that sticks out the front. So not easily to like doesn't you couldn't hide something in it, I don't think, is what I'm trying to say. Right, right. It seems like, you know, based on the pictures he showed, it's about a third bigger than a typical SFP. Um, yeah. The, the specs on it, uh, it's a, a version 7 ARM core, 512 uh, M's of RAM, 125 megabits of throughput. So, you know, it's not a huge computer in this FFP, SFP, which you'd expect, but you can do a few fun things with it. Mm. Watch out for power draw as well. Not all computers <laughs> uh, would be able to power, no, sorry, not all Ethernet switches would be able to power that necessarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it did, uh, in my mind, for a second, raise the specter of supply chain attacks, uh, particularly if you're dealing with, you know, someone with nation-state resources who could maybe make an SFP with an onboard mm-hmm. uh, Linux that looks like a standard SFP, and then somehow slip that into somebody's network, and then shenanigans commence. Uh, I mean, hypothetically, if wishes were fishes, you know, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, it's possible. But at the end of the day, the envelope here is that when you have a CPU and ARM core and memory, there's heat, there's power uh, and space that they take up and a normal SFP head shell, they need to be bigger mm-hmm. and visually they're going to be much larger and it mm-hmm. would be easy to detect that sort of thing. So I'm not inclined to say that that's possible. Okay. Not at this stage, unless you could somehow shrink an ARM and a gigabit of memory down into something that fits onto a single sock. And mm-hmm. that's not where we're at today. They're still chiplets. You've made me feel a little better. Mm. For me, thanks to Tony E. Uh, he co-hosts the Network Collective podcast. He gave me a heads up about it on Twitter, so I appreciate the the shout out. Mm-hmm. Um, the link in the show notes if you want to go read about it yourself. It is a very interesting article. Uh, speaking of interesting articles, there's a story in InfoWorld that's highlighting the gap between talk about cloud adoption and actual dollars spent. So the article is comparing data from an O'Reilly survey about cloud adoption and cloud migration plans where everyone, it sounds like, is going gangbusters into the cloud uh, versus actual IDC spending data that shows that just 6% of IT spend has been on SaaS, IaaS, and PaaS uh, in 2019, uh, meaning the 94% is going to traditional IT. Yeah, and I think the challenge here is numbers don't lie except when they do, <laughs> if that makes sense. So if you figure how much money is actually spent on, say, infrastructure, uh, how much of that is actually, I think I've seen numbers where they say like $1.2 trillion will be spent on uh, IT in a, every year. Mm-hmm. But if you work, if you sort of start to dig at the numbers and poke them apart, something, the substantial part of that is headcount. And that doesn't change just because you go to the cloud. In fact, it gets worse on the public cloud because they're harder to use and they're more complicated and you have to do, do so you need more headcount once you go to the public cloud, not mm-hmm. less, because mm-hmm. you have to DevOps. You know? you, and it's all your fault. You can't outsource it to anybody once it goes to the public cloud. Um, and I think also the fact is that public cloud is only addressing a very niche set of applications at this point. If you think about the cost of a SAP deployment, which is often measured in tens of millions for big companies, the cloud doesn't really make a dent in the price of that product. It's Mm -hmm. all in the application and the company that wrote the app and the branding and so forth. So in that sense, the numbers don't lie. Yes, only a very small amount of IT spend is currently SaaS, ES, and PaaS, 
And I don't actually expect that number will ever get very large depending on how you measure it. Does that make sense? I mean, I can, uh, yes, it does seem like there's a gap between perception and reality where we're constantly talking about cloud, but the actual money being spent is just a tiny fraction of traditional IT. And partly that's because of there's just a lot of legacy and existing stuff. You still need to operate and support and you can't move yeah. it into the cloud for whatever reason. And so, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, well, this, you know, 10 years ago, we were talking about virtualization, like hypervisor virtualization. Yeah. And then it became network virtualization. And then it became storage virtualization. And now it's off-prem cloud, you know, which is still doing virtualization, network virtualization, storage virtualization. But now we're very much moving into a phase of operational um, optimization. How do we optimize our consumption? How do we make ads, moves, and changes on these systems? And I think there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here that that doesn't that doesn't replace cost. So you know, you've still got phone systems and smartphones and mobile desk management and off-prem cloud doesn't solve any of that. SaaS services help you to solve some of that. And SaaS might be on a public cloud, but that's not, is that calculated in this number? Are they calculating the costs of what SaaS companies use? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I also think the line between traditional IT spending and cloud spending is going to get a little blurry. So, you know, is your cloud managed YLAN a hardware spend or a cloud spend? Is your cloud managed SD-WAN a cloud spend or mm -hmm. a hardware spend? Um, I also think we're going to see things like cloud-delivered security start to eat into more of that traditional IT spend. Um, but that's it's going to take a long time before, yeah. if, if we ever even get to any kind of spending parity. Yeah, well, just to, just to give you a, a sort of a scale that might make more sense for numbers, AWS is doing $15 billion a quarter of revenue, mm -hmm. give or take. Mm -hmm. Cisco does 13 to $15 billion a quarter. They have quarters where they're up and down a little bit, mm -hmm. but, you know, about the same sort of... So AWS is about the same size as Cisco in terms of revenue. Yep. Um, and in profit margins, give or take. Uh, and But Dell is about $45 billion a quarter. So AWS is about a one-third of a Dell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's a very Sorry. telling figure, yes. Yeah. That doesn't, you know, we're still not calculating in HP, HPE, you know, all of the other IT vendors. We're not talking about IT spend that goes into, you know, WAN circuits, MPLS services, mm -hmm. so much, you know, storage, you know, all yep. that stuff. So, yeah. Yep. All right, link in the show notes if you want to read that article for yourself. Uh, sticking with cloud, uh, Bucky Moore, he is a VC at Kleiner Perkins, has published a post sharing his views on where the tech industry is trending. And one thing that he's seeing is third-party serverless infrastructure startups challenging the big three cloud providers. And Greg, this is a post you were particularly keen on. So this is going back to this idea of cloud and cloud hype. Uh, and this person is a venture capitalist at Kleiner Perkins, who's a big investor in enterprise IT startups. There's a number of venture capitalists who are just interested in IT startups for that sell to enterprises. And what he's highlighting here is um, that he believes that the future is actually in SaaS providers like Netlify and Vercel and Cloudflare. Uh, those are companies that he, not all companies that he invests in, but he particularly calls out the ones that he's made investments in. And those companies grew gangbusters like Snowflake, which is a data analysis company, has gone from nothing to 15 billion in three years or five years or something like that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so his point that he's making in this post is that the user experience of off-prem infrastructure clouds is just so horrible, like there's just as bad as on-prem infrastructure clouds. They're hard to use and hard to get business value from. And that in effect, what customers want is a cloud that is easy to use and solves a business problem. And that that is not AWS. That is services like, uh, you know, Netlify and Snowflake and Cloudflare with its serverless platform. And I generally tend to agree. I think that off-prem clouds will pretty rapidly hit uh, 
a point where if you actually still want an instance or the the building blocks that make an infrastructure, that's what they'll have. And there will be other companies who then take those building blocks and turn them into products, which are actually what businesses want. You don't want to set up an in-house development team to build a website maintenance platform or a website operating platform, right? Like Netlify. Yeah, I guess I take his point that customers want solutions, not infrastructure to run. Uh, I will mm. say of all the things I've heard about serverless, it being easier to use is not one of those things. So I'm, I'm mm. not sure about that uh, statement, but I agree with the general point that customers just want to solve problems, not have to worry about futzing around with yeah. stuff. Well, no, but customers never wanted to buy IT infrastructure. They didn't want to buy a database or a microcomputer or a PC desktop. But you know, back in the, in the early 2000s, customers bought PCs because they wanted to use Lotus 1, 2, 3. Right. And, you know, they went and bought microcomputers and Novell Netware because they wanted to run accounting solutions. And if you wanted to have those tools, you had to take the other part of it, which was the infrastructure. Customers never wanted to run servers or desktops or any of that sort of stuff. Um, and if you want to have all of those things, then you have to buy servers and desktops in that example. Um, and if you want to have off, take that and put it into somebody else's infrastructure, fine but it's still not solving the actual underlying problem, which we all know, right? We all know they're solving my problem. I don't want to do data center networking. To some extent, I can outsource parts of that to AWS or Azure or Google, but equally it doesn't solve my business problem, which just wants to sell something like Salesforce and use a tool like Salesforce. Yeah, one thing that did jump out to me in that post is that he he's contending that the big three cloud providers, the public cloud providers, AWS, Azure, Google, et cetera, um, are eventually going to just become... Uh, utilities, just like electricity, where mm. we just sort of flip them on and off and don't think about them, which <laughs> I'm sure for them uh, is like, no, we're the engines of innovation. We're all about innovation yeah. and we're the cutting edge and how dare you? So that, I thought that was a, a bold statement. Yeah, I, I think most of the VCs are falling out of love with off-prem cloud uh, because of the pricing. And they realize that it's such a, a massive financial drag on their investments and they have no control over that spend. And I think we're going to see a tussle going forward where people who own companies that have gone from zero to, you know, 20 billion in value, but they've got very small revenues, you know, like 50 million revenue on a $10 billion valuation. Well, your AWS bill might be bigger than your total revenue because you're still scaling up. You haven't, your product's not efficient, you know, that sort of stuff. And so I think the VCs are starting to realize that there's a bit of a curse there and that optimizing for startups to fail. So in the public cloud, when a startup fails, you just turn everything off and walk away, right? Um, there's a curse of once if you get a success, it's actually a drag on profitability and ultimately on the valuation of that business when you go to market. So I think we're going to see more of this. And also, he's also boosting his own prowess. Let's just let's be honest. Right. He's saying how awesome his investments are and bragging because he thinks you know. <laughs> there's a lot of crowing in this post uh, and I would yes. be very skeptical about a VC touting uh, either their own portfolio or just a sector that their portfolio is in as being the future so yeah exactly uh, so yes. there's plenty but I think it's correlation of previous uh, discussions that we've had before and even articles at the top of the show that off-prem cloud isn't all of that it's pretty great don't get me wrong but it's not all that all right, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Nokia. If you're looking to build a data center fabric, you'll want to tune into a recent Tech Bytes episode with Nokia. We examine how Nokia's SR Linux operating system can help you build a data center fabric with eVPN. The episode covers essential information, including support for MGBGP and Nokia's SR Linux, uh, using Nokia's fabric services system to simplify operations, and Nokia's commitment to eVPN, interoperability testing, and more. You can hear the full episode and get additional educational resources by going to nokia.ly slash eVPN. 
That's nokia.ly slash eVPN. And we thank Nokia for being a sponsor. Back to the news. Zeo Group, they provide fiber networks to data centers, cloud providers, and others. They've acquired QoS Networks. QoS Networks is a managed service provider of SD-WAN and networking services. Yeah, Quas Networks, uh, I had to go off and look at their website. I don't know. We haven't, you heard of them before? Never heard of them. Did Never I heard some? of Zeo or Quas Networks. So. <laughs> well, Zeo is a company that um, has been deploying fiber optic, like literally buying up routes and then digging and trenching fiber optic into the ground and then selling that fiber optic off to other companies. And now it's bought an SD-WAN provider, except Quas Networks doesn't actually say which appliances it uses for SD-WAN. So they I, do. No, they do. Uh, they mm-hmm. are a managed service provider for uh, VeloCloud, Palo Alto, and Versa. That's who they offer. Okay. I wasn't able to find that. Maybe I'm stupid today. <laughs> it was but a probably. dense press release with a lot of blah, blah. You had to dig to find yeah. the, the nuggets. Right. So they basically take other people's SD-WAN solutions and then slap an orchestration platform on the top. Is that right? That's what I got out of it. It's a managed service. It's just basically a managed service. You don't want to run your VeloCloud, they'll do it for you, yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Great. I suppose. <laughs> I so guess, yes. that doesn't really, you know, like, okay, why does a fiber company want to have an SD-WAN outsourcer in yeah. its portfolio? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't seem immediately synergistic. Am I not, am I missing something? It only seems synergistic to me if Zaya was looking to uh, sort of go up the value chain where they're not just providing the fiber. They also want to get some money from the services running on top, I suppose, if that's mm-hmm. their strategy. Yeah. It just like if if your job is buying a, you know spending tens of millions for rights of way, and then many tens of millions more to trench fiber optic in the ground and bring it up at pop points and then sell it off to other people. Uh, but then again, maybe they've been buying data centers and um, they've got customers in data centers that are connected to that fiber optic. I suppose. Uh, and yeah. then yeah, and so now there's a chance where they can add this on. I mean, their website talks about offering cloud link DDoS protection. They already offer an SD-WAN service on its own right. So maybe this is the next a way to synergistically grow their existing portfolio. Yeah, I mean, that's my assumption then is that, yeah, we've we've spent all that money on trenching the fiber and rolling it out and getting connected. Now let's actually make some money from stuff running over that fiber. Well, I guess on the other hand, if you've got 370 plus private MPLS pops and nobody's buying your private MPLS anymore, <laughs> <laughs> maybe you need to drive consumption of yeah. that. That like, bandwidth that you've created, maybe yes. you need to do something to bring your customer bandwidth, because uh, otherwise they'll just go out to the public internet and use permissionless, what I call a permissionless SD-WAN. You know, when you connect to the internet, you don't need anybody's permission to yep. connect two SD-WAN devices together. No, you do not. And a lot of these companies are saying, oh, no, 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 you need to have SD-WAN, but you need to use our private network. You need our permission to connect <laughs> because somehow it's good or uh, so. Uh, yeah, maybe that's the, maybe that's the play. It's it's also the same reason we see telcos uh, and service providers getting into the managed services game with SD WAN because they're watching those MPLS circuit numbers uh, get eroded by people just going to public mm-hmm. internet for SD WAN services. So they might as well get a piece of the action. Yeah, I'm not opposed to private MPLS with SD WAN on it. I just believe that permissionless networking is actually better with the success of the internet at large. Is that anybody can set up a business, Netflix and Xbox and, you know, uh-huh. packet uh-huh. pushes can set up businesses on the internet <laughs> and you don't need permission from some middleman to access them. You don't need to connect to some private network to get access to those. So I'm generally a believer that most modern businesses are better on a permissionless platform uh, unless you've got a specific 
use case on which to be SD-WANing over a private, a dedicated or a separated or isolated infrastructure. But I really can't imagine what that would be. I mean, I'm sure they exist. There's also just sort of that comfort feeling like, well, I know I get an SLA and I couldn't find a public broadband yeah. in this area, et cetera. So yeah, there's reasons. Yeah, SLA normally comes by getting a 10 meg circuit instead of a 100 meg circuit. I can guarantee you 10 megs, mm-hmm. but I can't guarantee you 100. That's why you get 10 meg services. Right. Right, that's how it works. But honestly, at at hundred megs, you know, even if you're only getting fifty, you're still five times better off than a guaranteed ten. Yes, you're you you do love to point out that bandwidth solves most problems. It solves all problems in network. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the good thing about SD WAN is it'll tell you if that hundred meg circuit isn't performing at le- at more than less than ten megs. Because if it is, then you want to switch, right? But it'll right. tell you. That's the right. good thing about that, SD. That is the nice thing about it. Yes. Yeah. In the old days, you just never knew. The router wouldn't tell you that the band that the MPLS provider was lying. <laughs> now you can check up on them with SD WAN. Now you can check up. On I them. think that is a key feature. Biggest and best feature of SD WAN is getting is uh, catching your telco out for sure. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on. Fifty major airports in the United States are going to have buffer zones to prevent interference with aircraft equipment from five G C band transmitters. That's according to the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration or FAA. Uh, AT&T and Verizon were set to launch 5G C-band services in early December, but the FAA halted the turn-up because of concerns over interference with altimeters in civilian aircraft. This has been brewing for a very long period of time. There's a lot of suggestion that the FTC allocated this spectrum without giving the FAA a chance to involve itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is so this is strictly a, a US issue at this particular point in time. And the FAA was very slow to react, and the FTC, uh, which allocated the, the spectrum to... The telcos. And of course, we're at this point in time, most people have a view that the FTC is captive to the telcos. But whatever the telcos want, the, uh, the US Telecommunications Commission will generally just give them because they've managed to put themselves in positions of power, to lobby them, to get into the political engine around the whole FTC process, and they get what they want, however they want it. Uh, and this is sort of an example of that. The FAA and the Defense Department have been pushing back against AT&T and Verizon for months and months, and it's only now that they've been able to get something going against it. And they've basically lost because ATT and Verizon want that spectrum. It's worth a lot of money to them, uh, and they're just not willing to give it up, and the FAA looks like it's lost. Well, or at least it's a fighting retreat because they did get this uh, buffer zone in place around yeah. 50 airports, including major airports like uh, its sites in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, so big sites. Uh, the buffer zone will be active for six months while the FAA and the wireless companies monitor the 5G deployments uh, and try to more fully address those concerns. And it does seem like it's uh, on civilian aircraft, which I assume are smaller aircraft. We're not talking about commercial jets and such. Yeah. Would it be interesting to see how it works out, but specifically to do with it just sort of highlights to me how complex the spectrum arguments are, mm-hmm. but it's also where um, government departments, which are intended to be in control of the industry, can be co-opted by corporations who can often move faster and smarter and spend money to um, get those organizations to act in a way with, that suits them. And you know, we've talked in the past about the US telco system being so different from what happens in Europe or in Asia or Oceania. And this might be an example where, you know, AT&T and Verizon are wielding corporate power to get you know, things moving in their favor. Yeah. Uh, the 5G services in the C-band are scheduled to go live in the U.S. on January 19th, 2022. So we'll keep an eye on the story. I hope nobody dies because a plane crashes. That's the, that would be the problem. That would be terrible. 
the Mobile World Congress Barcelona, it's one of the largest tech events for the mobile industry. They've declared they will go forward with an in-person event in Spain in late February, despite the rampant advance of COVID infections around the globe. Organizers expect more than 1,500 exhibitors to be present. Uh, the CEO of GSMA, that's the organization that runs the event, bizarrely cited responsible leadership as a factor in pushing the live event to take place. I'm not sure how that tracks, but that is from a blog written by the CEO of the GSMA. I can't I can't see how responsible leadership of his company, which is making a profit to stay in business, which is what his responsible leadership if is, actually results in your um, personal safety. So I was asked to go to an event recently and I sat down and gave myself a good think about whether I would go. And they made a big point to me about the event being safe, that they were going to do this and everybody had to be vaccinated, masks would be compulsory. And, I, and for a minute there, I almost fell into the delusion that, you know, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I should go, right? You mm-hmm. think to yourself, I, I should go. And then I went like, hang on, hang on. I've got to go to an airport, sit in a shared space with a bunch of people for whom vaccination status is unknowable. Masks may or may not be. Then I've got to sit in an in a aluminium tube with recirculated air for at least six hours, right? Mask or no mask, uh, if you want to eat or whatever. Um, and then when I'm in the other, when I get to the other end, I have to be in shared spaces. I have to be in hotels. That's where the risk is. The risk isn't the venue. So don't, and that was what I caught myself was thinking like, it's not the venue. The venue is actually the, probably the safest space because it's a controlled situation, but it's the travel on a plane, on a bus, on a coach or a train. Um, if you can drive somewhere, okay, maybe you can get it. And then the secondary issues that I came up with is if you actually get ill, if you get ill in a country like Spain, what happens then? Mm-hmm. Are you going to be there mm-hmm. for three weeks while your COVID runs its course, a week or seven days? Right. Where do you stay? Who pays? Right. So, um, and then the last one was um, what happens if travel conditions change? What happens if governments suddenly decide to ban travel from a location, as has happened many times, right. and you can't get home? What happens then? And what's the impact to your life and to your work? And those were the questions I couldn't answer. So in the end, I said no. It wasn't the venue and it wasn't the safety of the venue. To me, it was all about the extraneous issues that are around the side. Are you a strong enough swimmer to uh, swim from Iberia to the UK? No. Surprisingly, no. <laughs> uh, and there has been uh, three times this year where people were traveling to and from Europe and the government has, for various reasons, canceled flights without notice. So you can actually, you know, in my case, I could be blocked from returning from the US. Some people have been caught out for months at a time. Right. Uh, and that's uh, that's not what I want. And I also don't want to be stuck in a Spanish hospital just in case. So that's what I was thinking. If yes. that helps you with your decision making, so be it. But yeah. I wouldn't be going. I am not going. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just a couple of notes on other live events. The, the Consumer Electronics Show, it's one of the largest tech events in the U.S. They hosted an in-person event this January in Las Vegas. Attendance was down 70 percent compared to pre-pandemic turnout. Um the RSA conference, that's another huge event in California. They pushed the event from February to June because of COVID. Uh, and Greg, you and I were both invited to Aruba Atmosphere. They're scheduling a hybrid mm-hmm. in-person or virtual event. They're doing it in late March. I appreciate the fact they're doing a virtual option, which I'm going to take advantage of. Cisco Live US 2022 is scheduled for June as an in-person hybrid mix. We'll see what things are like in June. Yeah. Like I said, if you want to go, that's okay. Um, and maybe your circumstances are, but the idea of going to Las Vegas, not exactly the location for where rational, careful uh, activities take place. Then okay. Exactly, exactly. But maybe you want to go. Maybe you're willing to take that risk. That's okay. But uh, yeah. 
After two years of sitting around my house, I am tempted to go to one of these events just yeah. for yeah. pleased to have something different to look at and somewhere new to go. But yeah, the right now the risk uh, equation for me is I'm, I'm going to stay in my seat. That's that's, that's right. Be well, for me, it's the consequences. What happens if this goes wrong? Right. And I'm um, well, you know, I traveled Africa for two years. Uh, when you balancing were those risks. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, that's right. So, you know, I'm willing to take them on if the time's if it right. But in this case, I think, eh, no, not so much. Right. All right. Links in the show notes if you want to check it out for yourself and decide if you want to be there. Our surfing dog story. Uh, this was shared by uh, a listener who uh, sent it to us via our FU page, packetportrait.net slash FU. And thank you. This is a good one. Uh, so there was a homeowner in North Texas in the United States who was having plumbing problems. So his showers were backing up, toilets wouldn't flush. Uh, plumbers investigated. They found that two fiber optic lines had cut right through the sewage pipe that led from his house uh, into the sewage system in the street. The two lines were owned by AT&T and a local service provider. The great thing about this is that there's a way of installing uh, underground fiber, which involves using a drill mm-hmm. and drilling through the ground and then laying the fiber in behind the drill piece. Mm-hmm. Now, in this case, two telcos actually managed to literally cross their fiber optic cables. You know, there's, a, there's an image attached to this, and you've got to see it. Literally managed to intersect inside of his sewage pipe. And as it says, it says it pro- happened two and a half years ago, and he only found out because as a single man living in a, in a house, it wasn't a big deal. The sewage could flow through. But when family came to stay over Christmas, he <laughs> he said, closing up the attic, he said, the only thing I want is my toilet to flush for Christmas. So, <laughs> so this pipe was blocked enough so when other people were coming, there was sewage backing up and coming out of the shower block and stuff like that. Yes. So... Uh, my only comment is that I thought fiber was supposed to help clear blockages, but uh, not not in this case. Yeah, that's right. And of course, when he contacted the telcos, they did nothing. They did nothing until um, he contacted his local news station. And then they were like, the oh, we'll station. get right on it. And they were there the next morning to fix it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, nobody's covered in glory there. Yeah. But <laughs> no. it is interesting that the fiber can be laid without actually trenching and that it went right through this pipe. Probably yeah. the best fiber optic story, trench, you know, outdoors fiber optic story I've seen in quite some time. It's going to be hard to beat for 2022. Uh, and we'll have I a photo so. uh, on the webpage if you want to check it out and the link to read the story. Mm. All right, that wraps up the news portion of Network Break. Stick around for our conversation with Netscope on why the architecture of your cloud security service matters. That's coming right up. On today's Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking security clouds, that is cloud services that offer capabilities including firewalling, traffic inspection, web gateways, and more. We explore why these clouds aren't all the same and why the architecture under the hood, including networking, makes a difference. We're sponsored today by Netscope, and our guest is Mark Day. He is Chief Scientist for Engineering at Netscope. Mark, welcome to the podcast. So if not all security clouds are the same, what's the differentiation besides you know just basic features? Well, I think that it's important uh, to take a look at the way that they're constructed as clouds. Uh, It's handy a lot of the time when you're talking about security clouds to just think about them as these abstractions. They're just kind of ways that you get traffic from uh, diverse users on diverse devices to diverse services. And so Mm. you can just kind of wave your hands at it and say, yeah, there's a cloud and it just takes care of it. But I think that particularly when you're a networking person, it's useful to uh, dig under the covers a little bit and to say, how is it actually constructed? Uh, We can say it's a cloud, but we know there's actually uh, pieces of networking, pieces of computing. How's all that assembled? And I think that 
in particular, it's worth understanding that a security cloud is a slightly different beast from most of the other clouds that people are likely to be familiar with. I think what you're alluding to there is that most content delivery networks, the, the traffic comes into a content delivery networks, and what they're trying to do is terminate it at the edge. And and not forwarded on, and they're architected in that way, you know the the internal operating systems, the backbones. But I think what you're alluding to is that Netscape takes the point of view that all traffic has to be forwarded, but before it does, it has to be inspected and logged. And you're suggesting, I think, uh, that there's actually fundamentally an architectural, a substantial architectural difference between the two approaches. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, when you're talking about a content distribution network, you're you know arguably about half of the way to doing a security cloud in the sense that a content distribution network uh, is concerned with uh, having a distributed architecture that's got good performance for lots of people all over the world. So that's mm -hmm. a, a heavy point of overlap. Mm -hmm. But you're exactly right to say that the, the metric for success, if you're a content distribution network, basically has to do with how successfully am I absorbing or mm. satisfying those requests at the edge. Uh, and if you have a situation in which, you know, 99% or more of your requests are going on to their original destinations, uh, your CDN is either badly designed or badly configured. Right. Whereas that's a, that's a pretty typical situation for a security cloud is that you're taking a look at everything, but the vast majority of it is continuing on because uh, you're filtering out a few threats, a few things that are policy violations, but you're expecting that most of the time, most people are uh, not doing something dangerous. Now, the point, of course, is that Netscope is a cloud security broker. You're a firewall, you're a content scanner, you're zero trust network access. And so your point would be is that your technology is designed to do that from the ground up. You're not a CDN that's just slapped on some extra features onto the back of it. That's right. We're, we're in a space that uh, one of the jargon terms for this is a secure service edge, uh, an SSE, mm -hmm. uh, or more, more colloquially as we're using now, we're talking about it being a security cloud. And that does mean that we've got a consolidation, if you like, of a lot of the kinds of things that people have historically done in different devices, uh, typically in their data centers. And what we've done is to build a platform that allows us to operate at internet scale uh, elastically and to effectively make those functions instead of being, if you like, uh, separate boxes, they're just additional capabilities on a unified platform. Uh, and so that's a piece of the, if you like, the value proposition here is that it's a great simplification and consolidation of that networking and security uh, task that you've, you, you know that you want to get the traffic from the users to the various cloud and SaaS services that they need. Um, and you also know that along the way, you need to protect them from threats. Uh, you need to ensure that mm. policies are not being violated. You need to make sure that things are in compliance. Uh, and so those are the kinds of capabilities that you get uh, from going through the Netscope cloud. But I feel like you sort of just described a generic cloud when you're talking about what you do in that you've got distributed resources, you've got elasticity, you can scale as necessary. So where's the differentiation? Well, the, the differentiation really has to do with one of our summaries, if you like, our slogans, is that we actually need to have a lot of compute in a lot of places. 
And what you find in more common clouds is you either have a proposition that means you've got a lot of compute, but not necessarily in a lot of places, Mm. or you've got a lot of places that don't necessarily have a lot of compute. And so a typical compute storage cloud like Amazon Web Services is an example where you've got a lot of compute. You don't have any shortage of ways that you can scale up the compute that you're using if you're using Amazon or one of their competitors. But if you go do the work of figuring out how many different locations there are where you can actually do that computing, even in Amazon, which is, of course, a large service, there aren't that many. And if you're trying to build a system so that you are within a few milliseconds of pretty much everyone who might want to use your service, you find that those services aren't really constructed the right way. They've been built around the idea of having relatively large locations in which they get great scaling, great cost effectiveness Hmm. for delivering those massive quantities of compute, but there just aren't that many of them. Hmm. CDNs tend to be the other way around. They definitely understand the importance of being close to lots of users in lots of different networks. Uh, But if you go to any given CDN and say, hi, I'd like to have a thousand cores, please, they look at you with horror. (laughs) You're saying you've put effort into splitting that difference between both scalability and geographical diversity and distribution. That's right. So Mm. the core insight, if you like, is to say that we need to have the kinds of many location approach that a CDN does. But we also need to have some of that computational intensity that a compute and storage cloud has. Uh, And so that's what we've built for ourselves. We call it New Edge, and it's our own infrastructure for the purpose of running the security cloud services that we then offer to our customers. Now, of course, this means as an SSE, this means I send you my traffic. So I can send you my traffic from wherever, from a desktop, from an SD-WAN appliance, you know, or some other method. There's lots of different ways. And you are then the broker that then does the inspection of the traffic. And in this case, because you get between me and my endpoint, I need your performance to be good. That, yeah, that's right. I mean, a, a piece of what we're actually trying to do, and it works surprisingly well, is that We're trying to be in a position where the combination of our network design and our attention to peering with other networks, Hmm. we're trying to make it so that we're gaining enough performance in our network so that we can add the security processing in and that it's kind of a wash. Now, you know, some of the time it's obviously going to be more expensive because we are doing more work than what happens if you just go to the the Hmm. service with no inspection. But it's actually turned out quite well that in a lot of cases, the performance is comparable. And that's nice because it means that you're not given a kind of difficult trade-off of do I have performance or do I have security? You can kind of have both. So what's so essential about how you've architected the networking as a differentiator? I I guess when I think about cloud-based security, the thing that comes to mind is Do I have sufficient compute to do things like get the decryption, move the packets through whatever security controls I'm implementing? But it also sounds like there are networking issues too, whether it's the last mile from the customer to your POP or from your POP to a destination that you also have to take into account. Right. I'd say that there's both the aspect of needing to be adequately distributed physically. So that has to do with getting near the endpoints and and having, as uh, we've talked about a little already, 
lots of different ways of capturing the traffic, whether it's from clients running on the endpoints or whether it's from uh, tunnels that are coming off of pieces of networking equipment uh, in a branch office, say. So that's kind of, if you like, the client side of the situation. Uh, on the server side, it turns out to matter more that you have good relationships with the key enterprise networks that you're going to go talk to. So, for example, a central thing that people are concerned about is getting to Office 365. Right. Um, we're not going to try to uh, outguess Microsoft's view about how to get traffic uh to their servers. Mm -hmm. Instead, what we're going to do is to make sure that in all of our locations where we're processing someone's traffic to see whether it's okay, uh, that we're peered with Microsoft and that we're near all of the Microsoft front doors so that they can then take the next step to, to go on. And of course, Microsoft's not the only one that matters. There's a kind of a repeating process there for uh, other vendors that uh, are significant destinations for enterprise traffic. So I'm guessing like AWS, Salesforce, the big SaaS players, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So, so, so you got to, the, the situation there again is, is an intriguing one, at least to me in that um, you've got multiple people who uh, typically when they are uh, at scale, they've got their own notion of what their distributed architecture is and they don't want you to try and be tricky and sort of inject it where you think it belongs. Uh, it's much more about understanding what they want and trying to basically hand that to them. Yeah. I, I mean, think the clouds want to be able with... to work on their own. They don't want to have to be worried about people out there on the internet who are in the middle boxes. They don't care. So you right. have to sort of work with them really, don't you? Yeah, well, it's, it's an interesting set of challenges. I mean, a piece of the, the value beyond the inspection itself is just, uh, if you like, taking care of all those relationships, all the ways of interconnecting into the customer's network so mm. that we can um, accumulate the traffic and then uh, to basically then scatter it back out to the services that they want. There's lots of uh, things, none of which is sort of exciting or rocket science in itself. It's just <laughs> lots of details, yeah, right? It's, right? It's yeah. a question of, you know, what does it take to really know peering? Well, it just takes a lot of details and a lot of knowledge. And that's, as an enterprise, something I am absolutely happy to hand off to a provider to let them take care of that for me. I don't want to deal with that. Yeah. And I, I think that is indeed a, a key part of our value for an enterprise is to to give you the opportunity to say, oh, I don't even need, want to think about that anymore. I'll just, but it, you know. And I think also a lot, of, a lot of CDN companies are doing deals on the basis of volume, not quality, because the money is in the volume of the internet traffic. And so they'll pick the cheapest peering partner, whereas you might pick the better peering partner. Yeah, I, I don't know that I, I necessarily want to make that claim mm. about CDNs and their, their policies and pricing, because uh, mm. it's not something I've looked at recently. But I think it is fair to say that we're, we're very focused on performance first peering in yeah. ways that some other people might be focusing more on, on cost. And your security profile, obviously, the, the unspoken topic here is, is Netscope you know, as feature performant and as capable as any other SSE. Like there's plenty of other clouds out there doing inline inspection to traffic. Is is You've covered all the bases on the security side? Yeah, I think so. I think that uh, particularly with respect to uh, the things that people are 
finding really crucial uh, in terms of trying to make make progress in this space. I mean, I, I think it's important to realize this is a kind of an architectural transformation we're talking about here. And so I don't think that these conversations work well if someone is approaching it from an angle that says, oh, you know, the only thing I'm interested in is uh, my my blue coats are basically going off support. And mm. so I need to do something about that. Um, I mean, we can certainly have that conversation, but the place that it really needs to go is to say, of course, you realize that not only are the blue coats going off support, but they're sort of the wrong approach in sort of the wrong place because all the things that you used to be uh, thinking of as traffic coming to your data center is now uh, people going to other places out on the, the wider web and out in the cloud. And so we need to talk about the fact that this is one of those transformational moments in which uh, networking is sort of turning itself inside out. Mm. And if, if we're just talking about the fact that this box is obsolete, um, you're probably missing the, the main thrust of the conversation. We are out of time, but there's, I think folks now have a lot more to think about, which is a good thing. And if uh, Mark, you have some guidance for them where they can go to get more details, where would you send them? I'd send them to netscope.com slash packet pushers. Fantastic. That's netscope.com slash packet pushers and it's Netscope with a K, N-E-T-S-K-O-P-E. Well, right. thank you, Mark, for joining us. And thanks to Netscope for being a sponsor. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking 